You're listening to Katherine Patterson's Bridge to Terabithia. This is part 4B and part 5. You ain't got nothing to do. You ain't even planned nothing. Leslie came and leaned over Maybelle, putting her hand on the little girl's thin shoulder. Maybelle, would you like some new paper dolls? Maybelle slid her eyes around suspiciously. What kind? Life in colonial America? Maybelle shook her head. I want bride or Miss America. You can pretend these are bride paper dolls. They have lots of beautiful long dresses. What's the matter with them? Nothing. They're brand new. How come you don't want them if they're so great? When you're my age, Leslie gave a little sigh. You just don't play with paper dolls anymore. My grandmother sent me these. You know how it is with grandmothers. They just refuse to believe that you're growing up. Maybelle's one living grandmother was in Georgia and never sent her anything. You already punched them out? No, honestly. And all the clothes punch out too. You don't have to use scissors. They could see she was weakening. How about, just began, you coming down and taking a look at them. And if they suit you, you could take them along home when you tell mama where I am. After they had watched Maybelle tearing up the hill, clutching her new treasure, Jess and Leslie turned and ran up over the empty field behind the old Perkins place and down to the dry creek bed that separated farmland from the woods. There was an old crab apple tree there, just as just at the bank of the creek bed, from which someone long forgotten had hung a rope. They took turns swinging across the gully on the rope. It was a glorious autumn day, and if you looked up as you swung, it gave you the feeling of floating. Jess leaned back and drank in the rich, clear color of the sky. He was drifting, drifting like a fat, white, lazy cloud back and forth across the blue. Do you know what we need? Leslie called to him. Intoxicated as he was with the heavens, he couldn't imagine needing anything on earth. We need a place, she said, just for us. It would be so secret that we would never tell anyone in the whole world about it. Just came swinging back and dragged his feet to stop. She lowered her voice almost to a whisper. It might be a whole secret country, she continued, and you and I would be the rulers of it. Her words stirred inside of him. He'd like to be ruler of something, even something that wasn't real. Okay, he said. Where could we have it? Over there in the woods where nobody would ever come and mess it up. There were parts of the woods that Jess did not like. Dark places where it was almost like being underwater, but he didn't say so. I know, she was getting excited. It could be a magic country like Narnia, and the only way you could get in is by swinging across this enchanted rope. Her eyes were bright. She grabbed the rope. Come on, she said. Let's find a place to build our castle stronghold. They had gone only a few yards into the woods beyond the creek bed when Leslie stopped. How about right here, she asked. Sure, Jess agreed quickly, relieved that there was no need to plunge deeper into the woods. He would take her there, of course, for he wasn't such a coward that he would mind a little exploring now and then farther in amongst the ever-darkening columns of the tall pines. But as a regular thing, as a permanent place, this was where he would choose to be, here where the dogwood and redwood played hide-and-seek between the oaks and evergreens, and the sun flung itself in golden streams through the trees to splash warmly at their feet. Sure, 
he repeated himself, nodding vigorously. The underbrush was dry and would be easy to clear away. The ground was almost level. This will be a good place to build. Leslie named their secret land Terabithia, and she loaned Jess all of her books about Narnia so he would know how things went in a magic kingdom, how the animals and the trees must be protected, and how a ruler must behave. That was the hard part. When Leslie spoke, the words rolling out so regally, you knew she was a proper queen. He could hardly manage English, much less the poetic language of a king. But he could make stuff. They dragged boards and other materials down from the scrap heap by Miss Bessie's pasture and built their castle stronghold in the place they had found in the woods. Leslie filled a three-pound coffee can with crackers and dried fruit and a one-pound can with strings and nails. They found five old Pepsi bottles, which they washed and filled with water, in case, as Leslie said, a siege. Like God in the Bible, they looked at what they had made and found it very good. You should draw pictures of Terabithia for us to hang in the castle, Leslie said. I can't. How could he explain it in a way Leslie would understand how he yearned, yearned to reach out and capture the quivering life about him and how, when he tried, it slipped past his fingertips, leaving a dry fossil upon the page. I just can't get the poetry of the trees, he said. She nodded. Don't worry, she said. You will someday. He believed her because there, in the shadowy light of the stronghold, everything seemed possible. Between the two of them, they owed the world and no enemy, Gary Fulcher, Wanda K. Moore, Janice Avery, just his own fears and insufficiencies, nor any of the foes whom Leslie imagined attacking Terabithia could ever really defeat them. A few days after they finished the castle, Janice Avery fell down in the school bus and yelled that Jess had tripped her as she went past. She made such a fuss that Mrs. Prentice, the driver, ordered Jess off the bus, and he had to walk the three miles home. When Jess finally got to Terabithia, Leslie was huddled next to one of the cracks below the roof, trying to get enough light to read. There was a picture on the, on the cover, which showed a killer whale attacking a dolphin. "'What you doing?' he came in and sat beside her on the ground. "'Reading. I had to do something. That girl, her anger came rocketing to the surface.' It don't matter. I don't mind walking all that much. What was a little hike compared to what Janice Avery might have chosen to do? It's the principle of the thing, Jess. That's what you've got to understand. You have to stop people like that. Otherwise, they turn into tyrants and dictators. He reached over and took the whale book from her hands, pretending to study the bloody picture on the jacket. Getting any good ideas? What? I thought she was getting some ideas on how to stop Janice Avery. No, stupid, we're trying to save the whales. They might become extinct. He gave her back the book. You save the whales and shoot the people, huh? She grinned finally. Something like that, I guess. Say, did you ever hear the story about Moby Dick? Who's that? Well, there was once this huge whale named Moby Dick. And Leslie began to spin out a wonderful story about a whale and a crazy sea captain who was bent on killing it. His fingers itched to try to draw it on paper. Maybe if he had some proper paints, he could do it. There ought to be a way of making the whale shimmering white against the dark water. At first, they avoided each other during, during school hours, but by October, they grew careless about their friendship. 
Gary Fulcher, like Brenda, took great pleasure in teasing Jess about his girlfriend. It hardly bothered Jess. He knew that a girlfriend was somebody who chased you on the playground and tried to grab you and kiss you. He could no more imagine Leslie chasing a boy than he could imagine Mrs. Double Chin Meyer shinnying up the flagpole. Gary Fulcher could go to you-know-where and warm his toes. There was really no free time at school except recess, and now that there were no races, Jess and Leslie usually looked for a quiet place on the field and sat and talked. Except for the magic half hour on Fridays, recess was all that Jess looked forward to at school. Leslie could always come up with something funny that made the long days bearable. Often, the joke was on Mrs. Myers. Leslie was one of those people who sat quietly at her desk, never whispering or daydreaming or chewing gum, doing beautiful schoolwork, and yet her brain was so full of mischief that if the teacher could have once seen through that mask of perfection, she would have thrown her out in horror. Jess could hardly keep a straight face in class, just trying to imagine what might be going on behind that angelic look of Leslie's. One whole morning, as Leslie had related it at recess, she had spent imagining Mrs. Myers on one of those fat farms down in Arizona. In her fantasy, Mrs. Myers was one of the foodaholics who would hide bits of candy bars in odd places up the hot water faucet, only to be found out and publicly humiliated before all the other fat ladies. That afternoon, Jess kept having visions of Mrs. Myers dressed only in a pink corset being weighed in. You've been cheating again, Gussie, the tall, skinny directoress was saying. Mrs. Myers was on the verge of tears. Jesse Aarons? The teacher's sharp voice punctured his daydream. He couldn't look Miss Myers straight in her pudgy face. He'd crack up. He set his sights on her uneven hemline. Yes'm? He was going to have to get coaching from Leslie. Mrs. Myers always caught him when his mind was on vacation, but she never seemed to suspect Leslie of not paying attention. He sneaked a glance up that way. Leslie was totally absorbed in her geography book, or so it would appear to anyone who didn't know. Terabithia was cold in November. They didn't dare build a fire in the castle, though sometimes they would build one outside and huddle around it. For a while, Leslie had been able to keep two sleeping bags in the stronghold, but around the 1st of December, her father noticed their absence, and she had to take them back. Actually, Jess actually just made her take them back. It was not that he was afraid of the Burks exactly. Leslie's parents were young, with straight white teeth and lots of hair, both of them. Leslie called them Judy and Bill, which bothered Jess more than he wanted it to. It was none of his business what Leslie called her parents, but he just couldn't get used to it. Both of the Burks were writers. Mrs. Burks wrote novels and, according to Leslie, was more famous than Mr. Burke, who wrote about politics. It was really something to see the shelf that had their books on it. Mrs. Burke was was Judith Hancock on the cover, which threw you at first, but then if you looked on the back, there was her picture looking very young and serious. Mr. Burke was going back and forth to Washington to finish a book he was working on with someone else, but he had promised Leslie that after Christmas he would stay home and fix up the house and plant his garden and listen to music and read books out loud and write only in his spare time. They didn't look like Jess's idea of rich, but even he could tell that the jeans they wore had not come off the counter at Newbury's. 
there was no TV at the Bergs, but there was mountain, but there were mountains of records and a stereo set that looked like something off Star Trek. And although their car was small and dusty, it was Italian and looked expensive too. They were always nice to Jess when he went over, but then they would suddenly begin to talk about French politics or string quartets, which at first he thought was a square box made out of string, or how to save the Timberwolves or Redwoods or singing whales, and he was scared to open his mouth and show once and for all how dumb he was. He wasn't uncomfortable having Leslie at his house either. Joyce Ann would stare, her index finger pulling down at her mouth, and making her drool. Brenda and Ellie always managed some remark about girlfriend. His mother acted stiff and funny just the way she did when she had to go up to school about something. Later, she would refer to Leslie's tacky clothes. Leslie always wore pants, even to school. Her hair was shorter than a boy's. Her parents were hardly more than hippies. Maybelle either tried to push in with him and Leslie or sulked at being left out. His father had seen Leslie only a few times and had nodded to show that he had noticed her, but his mother said that she was sure he was fretting that his only son did nothing but play with girls, and they were both worried about what would become of it. Just didn't concern himself with what would become of it. For the first time in his life, he got up every morning with something to look forward to. Leslie was more than his friend. She was his other more exciting self his way to Terabithia and all the worlds beyond. Terabithia was their secret, which was a good thing, for how could Jess have ever explained it to an outsider? Just walking down the hill towards the, wood, towards the woods made something warm and liquid steal through his body. The closer he came to the dry creek bed and the crabapple tree rope, the more he could feel the beating of his heart. He grabbed the end of the rope and swung out toward the other bank with a kind of wild exhilaration and landed gently on his feet, taller and stronger and wiser in that mysterious land. Leslie's favorite place besides the castle stronghold was the pine forest. There the trees grew so thick at the top that the sunshine was veiled. No low bush or grass could could enter into that dim light, so the ground was carpeted with golden needles. I used to think of this I used to think this place was haunted, Jess had confessed to Leslie the first afternoon he had revved up his courage to bring her there. Oh, but it is, she said, but you don't have to be scared. It's not haunted with evil things. How do you know? You can just feel it. Listen. At first, he heard only the stillness. It was the stillness that had always frightened him before, but this time it was like the moment after Miss Edmonds finished a song, just after the chords hummed down to silence. Leslie was right. They stood there, not moving, not wanting the swish of the dry needles beneath their feet to break the spell. Far away from their former world came the cry of geese heading southward. Leslie took a deep breath. This was not an ordinary place, she whispered. Even the rulers of Terabithia came into it only at times of greatest sorrow or of greatest joy. We must strive to keep it sacred. It would not do to disturb the spirits. He nodded, and without speaking, they went back to the creek bank, where they shared together a solemn meal of crackers and dried fruit. Part 5. The Giant Killers Leslie liked to make up stories about the giants that threatened the peace of Terabithia, but they both knew that the real giant in their lives was Janice Avery. Of course, it wasn't only Jess and Leslie 
that she was after. She had two friends, Wilma Dean and Bobby Sue Henshaw, who were almost as big as she was, and the three of them would roam the playground, grabbing up hopscotch rocks, running through jump ropes, and laughing while second graders screamed. They would even stand outside the girls' room first thing every morning and make the little girls give them their milk money before they'd let them go to the bathroom. Maybelle, unfortunately, was a slow learner. Her daddy had brought her a package of Twinkies, and so she was so proud that as soon as she got on the bus, she forgot everything she knew and yelled to another first grader, Guess what I got in my lunch today, Billie Jean? What? Twinkies! She shouted so loud you could have heard her in the back seat, even if you were deaf in both ears. Out of the corner of his eye, just thought, just thought he saw Janice Avery perk up. When they sat down, Maybelle was still screeching about her dadgum Twinkies over the roar of the motor. My daddy brung them to me from Washington. Just threw another look at the back seat. You better shut up about those dang Twinkies, he said in her ear. You just jealous because daddy didn't bring you none. Okay, he shrugged across her head at Leslie to say, I want her, didn't I? And Leslie nodded back. Neither of them was too surprised to see Maybelle come screaming toward them at recess time. She stole my Twinkies! Jess sighed. Maybelle, didn't I tell you? You gotta kill Janice Avery. Kill her! Kill her! Kill her! Shh! Leslie said, stroking Maybelle's head, but Maybelle didn't want comfort. She wanted revenge. You gotta beat her up into a million pieces. He'd sooner tangle with Mrs. Godzilla herself. Fighting ain't gonna get back nothing, Maybelle. Them Twinkies is well on their way to patting Janice Avery's bottom by now. Leslie snickered, but Maybelle was not to be distracted. You're just yeller, Jesse Aarons. If you wasn't yeller, you'd beat somebody up if they took your little sister's Twinkies. She broke into a, fet into a fresh round of sobbing. Jess stiffened. He avoided Leslie's eyes. Lord, there was no escape. He'd have to fight the female Godzilla now. Look, Maybelle, Leslie was saying, if Jess picks a fight with Janice Avery, you know perfectly well what will happen. Maybelle wiped her nose on the back of her hand. She'll beat him up. No, he'll get kicked out of school for fighting a girl. You know how Mr. Turner is about boys who pick on girls. She stole my Twinkies. I know she did, Maybelle, and Jess and I are going to figure out a way to pay her back for it, aren't we, Jess? He nodded vigorously. Anything was better than promising to fight Janice Avery. What you gonna do? I don't know yet. We'll have to plan it out very carefully, but I promise you, Maybelle, we'll get her. Cross your heart and hope to die? Leslie solemnly crossed her heart. Maybelle turned expectantly to see Jess, so he crossed his too trying hard not to feel like a fool crossing his heart to a first grader in the middle of the playground. Maybelle snuffled loudly. It ain't as good as seeing her beat to a million pieces. No, said Leslie. I'm sure it isn't, but with Mr. Turner running the school, it's the best we can do, right, Jess? Right. That afternoon, crouched in the stronghold of Terabithia, they held a council of war. How to get Janice Avery without ending up squashed or suspended? That was their problem. Maybe we could get her caught doing something. Leslie was trying out another idea after they had both rejected putting honey on her bus seat and glue in her hand and glue in her hand lotion. 
You know, she smokes in the girls' room. If we could just get Mr. Turner to walk past while the smoke is pouring out. Jess shook his head hopelessly. It would take her five minutes to find out who squawked. There was a moment of silence while they both considered what Janice Avery might do to anyone who reported her to the principal. We gotta get her without her knowing who done it. Yeah, Leslie chewed away at a dried apricot. You know what girls like Janice hate most? What, being made a fool of? Just remembered how Janice had looked that day he'd made everyone laugh at her on the bus. Leslie was right. There was a crack in the old hippo hide. Yeah, he nodded, beginning to smile. Yeah, do we get her about being fat? How about, Leslie began slowly, how about boys? Who's she stuck on? Willard Hughes, I reckon. Every girl in seventh grade slides to the ground when he walks by. Yeah, Leslie's eyes were shining. The plan came all in a rush. We write her a note, you see, and pretend it's from Willard. Jess was already getting a pencil from the can and yanking a piece of notebook paper out from under a rock. He handed them to Leslie. No, you write. My handwriting is too good for Willard Hughes. He got set and waited. Okay, she said. Um, dear Janice. No, dearest Janice. Jess hesitated, doubtful. Believe me, Jess, she'll eat it up. Okay, dearest Janice. Don't worry about punctuation or anything. We have to make it look as if Willard Hughes really wrote it, okay? Dearest Janice, maybe you won't believe me, but I love you. You think she'll, he asked as he wrote it down. I told you she'll eat it up. Girls like Janice Avery believe just what they want to in this kind of situation. Okay, now, if you say you do not love me, it will break my heart. So please don't. If you love me as much as I love you, my darling. Hold it. I can't write that fast. Leslie waited. And when he looked up, she continued in a moony voice. Meet me behind the school this afternoon after school. Do not worry about missing your bus. I want to walk home with you and talk about us. Put us in capitals. My darling, love and kisses, Willard Hughes. Kisses? Yeah, kisses. Put a little row of X's in there, too. She paused, looking over his shoulder while he finished. Oh, yes, put P.S. He did. Um, don't tell any, don't tell nobody. Let our love be a secret for only us two right now. Why'd you put that in? So, so she'll be sure to tell somebody, stupid. Leslie reread the note, nodding approval. Good. You misspelled believe and two. She studied She studied it a minute longer. Gee, I'm, I'm pretty good at this. Sure, you probably had some big secret love down in Arlington. Jess Aarons, I'm going to kill you. Hey, girl, you kill the king of Terabithia and you're in trouble. Regicide, she said proudly. Regi, what? Did I ever tell you the story of Hamlet? He rolled over on his back. Not yet, he said happily. Lord, he loved Leslie's stories. Someday, when he was good enough, he would ask her to write them in a book and let him do all the pictures. Well, she began, there was once a prince of Denmark named Hamlet. In his head, he drew the shadowy, the shadowy castle with the tortured prince pacing the parapets. How could you make a ghost come out of the fog? 
Crayons wouldn't do, of course, but with paints, you could put one thin color on top of another so that you could begin to see a pale figure moving from, moving from deep inside the paper. He began to shiver. He knew he could do it if Leslie would let him use her paints. The hardest thing of the plan to get Janice Avery was to plant the note. They sneaked into the building the next morning before the first bell. Leslie went several yards ahead so that if they were caught, no one would think they were together. Mr. Turner was death on boys and girls he caught sneaking around the halls together. So she got to the door of the seventh grade classroom and peeked in. Then she signaled Jess to come ahead. The hairs prickled up his neck. Lord, how will I find her desk? I thought you knew where she sat. He shook his head. I guess you'll have to look in every seat until you find it. Hurry. I'll be lookout for you. She closed the door quietly and left him shuffling through each desk, trying to be careful not to make a mess, but his stupid hands were shaking so much he could hardly pull anything out to look for names. Suddenly, he heard Leslie's voice. Oh, Mrs. Pierce, I've just been standing here waiting for you. Lord, the seventh grade teacher was right out there in the hall, heading for this room. He stood frozen. He couldn't hear what Mrs. Pierce was saying back to Leslie through the closed door. Yes, ma'am. There is a very interesting nest on the south end of the building, and since Leslie raised her voice even louder, you know so much about science, I was hoping you could take a minute to look at it with me and tell me what built it. There was a mumble of a reply. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Pierce. Leslie was practically screaming. It won't take but a minute, and it would mean so much to me. As soon as he heard their retreating footsteps, he flew around the remaining desk until, oh joy, he found one with a composition book that had Janice Avery's name on it. He stuffed the note on top of everything else inside the desk and raced out of the room to the boys' room where he hid in one of the stalls until the bell rang to go to home room. At recess time, Janice Avery was in a tight huddle with Wilma and Bobby Sue. Then, instead of teasing the little girls, the three of them wandered off arm in arm to watch the big boys play football. As the trio passed them, Jess could see Janice's face all pink and prideful. He rolled his eyes at Leslie and she rolled hers back at him. As the bus was about to pull out that afternoon, one of the seventh grade boys, Billy Morris, yelled up to Mrs. Prentice that Janice Avery wasn't on the bus yet. It's okay, Miss Prentice. Wilma Dean called up. She ain't riding this evening. Then, in a loud whisper, reckon you all know that Janice has a heavy date with you-know-who. Who? asked Billy. Willard Hughes. He's so crazy about her, he can't hardly stand it. He's even walking her all the way home. Yeah? Well, the three or, well, the 304 just pulled out with Willard Hughes on the back seat. If he's got a big date, he don't seem to know much about it. You lie, Billy Morris. Billy yelled a cuss word, and the entire back seat plunged into a heated discussion as to whether Janice Avery and Willard Hughes were or were not in love and were or were not seeing each other secretly. As Billy got off the bus, he hollered to Wilma, You just better tell Janice that Willard is going to be mad when he hears that she's spreading, hears what she's spreading all over the school. Wilma's face was crimson as she screamed out the window, Okay, you dummy, you talk to Willard. You'll see. Just ask him about that letter. You'll see. Poor old Janice Avery, Jess said as they sat in the castle later. Poor old Janice. She deserves everything she gets and then some. I reckon, he sighed, but still. Leslie looked stricken. 
You're not sorry we did it, are you? No, I reckon we had to, but still. Still what? He grinned. Maybe I got this thing for Janice like you got this thing for killer whales. She punched him in the shoulder. Let's go and find some giants or walking dead to fight. I'm sick of Janice Avery. The next day, Janice Avery stomped onto the bus, her eyes daring everyone in sight to say a word. Leslie nudged Maybelle. Maybelle's eyes went wide. Did ya? Shh. Yes. Maybelle turned completely around and stared at the back seat, and then she turned back and poked Jess. You made her that mad? Jess nodded, trying to move his head as little as possible as he did so. We wrote that letter, Leslie whispered, but you mustn't tell anyone or she'll kill us. I know, said Maybelle, her eyes shining. I know.